Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And you're listening to our 400th episode. 400 hours of magic almost. Yeah, some of them, some of them a bit longer than 400 hours. Um, they've flown by. And um, and I'd like to say that it was, a, it was a celebration for the 400th that I decided we should do two films in one go. But actually, uh, it didn't occur to me. It was just because uh, it was less editing work and it's light. Well, I think also the films that we are going to be talking about are connected in all sorts of ways. Yeah. So the thing is that they're completely separate films. They're not connected in terms of production, anything like that. But they are both horror films. They're both sequels. Um, they're both Catholic mm. to greater or lesser degrees. They're about faith and yeah. demons and hell. Yeah. So uh, we saw The Nun 2 and we saw The Nun 1 on the podcast. And we both more or less liked it, I think. We, we, we kind of found it... Um, I want to say stupid, but um, <laughs> but kind of quite entertaining, and it was schlocky in certain ways, and it wasn't afraid to kind of throw effects at you and things. We found that quite enjoyable, I think. Mm. I haven't listened back to much of that podcast, but I seem to recall having a, a reasonably fun time. Yeah, though, I mean, we didn't think it was a good film, but, you know, it was yeah. an enjoyable watch. Uh, um, and we saw the original Exorcist on the podcast when we were doing William Friedkin films. Yes. Um, the series has been rebooted uh, under the direction of uh, David Gordon Green. Apparently, it's going to have two sequels uh, that follow this. This is The Exorcist Believer, mm. uh, which stars uh, Leslie Odom Jr., who we've seen in a, a bunch of films we were just looking at, but he's never made a huge impression on us, but we like him. Yes, and, and actually, today, he make, uh, in The Exorcist, he, he makes an impression. He's very charismatic, and he's very good, and he's somebody you want to watch. Yeah, and he leads the film in this, which is not what he yeah. was doing in the others. He was... He yeah, was a secondary character. I, I, actually, I was thinking how interesting it was because, you know, I think last week we were criticizing what's his name, Denzel Washington's son, John David Washington. Yeah, as not having the charisma really to be a film star, and I think Leslie Odom Jr. does. Yeah, to me, he he was very watchable. Yeah, I kind of like, yeah. enjoyed looking at him. He's he's best known for being Aaron Burr in Hamilton, the original yeah. cast of Hamilton. Um, but we've seen him in. Uh, let me just get those, that list up again. We've seen him in Murder on the Orient Express, Harriet, uh, The Many Saints of Newark, Glass Onion, uh, and this. And um, and so in those other films, he's part of you know, large cast. An ensemble, yeah. But, um, and like I say, we don't actually remember that much of him in those films. But he's very likeable. And here he leads the film. Yeah. Uh... So in the car on the way back, um, you said, neither of these films is very good. Um, but, you know, it would be interesting to talk about them. And I, I kind of agree. I had a better time in The Nun 2 than I did The Exorcist Believer. I think The Nun 2 is the better film, right? Because I I, I was very involved... I should just say quickly, spoilers, of course, are going to be coming up in, in all of this. Yes. Um, I was very... So I had this mixed feeling about the film visually, right? Mm -hmm. That on the one hand, you know, I have this thing, and I don't know if it's because it wasn't on IMAX or whatever about the image being thin and being too gray, right? Yeah, but on the other hand, the uh, Nun 2 feels the work of a filmmaker, someone who's interested in visuals and compositions, mm -hmm. and it has all of these wonderful expressionist shadows and, you know, kind of these, these 
uh, uh, use of angles and, you know, cameras overhead. And you can see that kind of thought has been given as to a choice of angle, for example. Something that I found not to be the case with The Exorcist. Yeah, we should say the director of um, The Nun 2 is Michael Chavez, uh, who has previously directed The Curse of La Llorona, mm. which we didn't see. I do remember the adverts for it. And he, and also The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, and The Nun is part of The Conjuring series. It's the eighth film in that series. But again, we didn't see that film. Yeah. Um, I don't... But he, he has previous in the horror genre. Well, it's a visual film, and it was fun to watch that way, mm. you know, and kind of your eye was always kind of looking for things when they moved from one room to another, and the shadows, and, you know... Uh, Every the... time I'm watching films like this, I, I'm I'm not watching the person who's in focus, mm. you know, because you know that the thing of interest that's going to be occurring is going to happen in the background, and the film is full, it knows exactly how to, how to allow you and make you do mm. that, that, you know, characters are off... Uh, to the side of the screen in unnatural ways. They're showing off the background that's mm. out of focus, waiting for the thing to walk past. You know, mm. so, I mean, the film is absolutely chock full of that. And it's, it's, um, I, I had a good time doing that. You know? I, I, I had a good time at the Nun, though, you know, I don't think it's a good film and I have all kinds of criticisms mm. about it. But what I thought was good was that it was visual, that it was kind of conveying the story visually, that it was helping to kind of, you know, create a mood and a tone and an audience interest through visuals that were, in fact, very sparse. Yeah, you could mm -hmm. tell that it wasn't the biggest budgets film, mm -hmm. right? Because often it would be like, you know, a nun in a hallway. <laughs> it was like, you know, really sparse, yeah? But the image would be made interesting and significant. And I mean, I wouldn't say scary, but just something that kept your interest going as to what was going to happen next. And again, I'm just underlining it because, by contrast, the Exorcist film, I thought, was completely amateurish. And I was surprised just to look at the Wikipedia page now and, you know, have someone kind of praise the visuals and design because I thought it was absolutely abysmal. I thought, you know, in The Exorcist, the camera is basically just following actors who will speak. Yeah, and mm -hmm. it wasn't kind of creating any visual design with them or any visual significance. You know, I was really kind of appalled by the scenes at the end, right, where they're all praying and doing the exorcism. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, how little variety of angles there were in that scene. Yeah, mm -hmm. where kind of so much could have been communicated just, you know, through kind of, you know, putting the camera on the floor, looking up or something, right? Like, But no, they were so, you know, the majority of the shots were all kind of, you know, camera at mid-level, kind of looking at close-ups, yeah, of people, you know, obviously the, mm. the actors themselves are going through paroxysms, right, but it's the actors who are communicating, not the image. The film, the film's visuals come to rely heavily on the um, makeup of the two girls who are possessed. Mm. Um, I would say, though, that in the first act of the film, um, I did like the cinematography, the the... The, the the way cam the camera would kind of roam from left to right in a scene, or it would shoot through windows when they when the girls are um first found and taken to hospital and being you know uncommunicative and and disoriented and so on, um, you eventually get a shot of, that's through two sets of windows where the one girl is looking at the other girl I think and there's something in <clears throat> there was something in that shot that I enjoyed there are, there are moments like that and actually the the first act of that film. 
uh, I enjoyed. I, oh, I wanted yeah. to see how this was going to develop. And it's once Ellen Burstyn comes into the film, I think it takes a huge nosedive. Well, um, I well, first of all, I don't agree. I also thought that all those scenes in Haiti were like, you know, to me, visually amateurish. Obviously, there's a lot going on and there's a lot of plot and, you know, and so on. So it is, you know, I think the first half hour of the film is the best of the film, mm. right? But I still don't think it's up to snuff uh, visually or, or in fact, narratively, right? Like, uh, you know, I was I was trying to make sense of the various kind of components of the film. And in fact, what's it about and what it's trying to say and how is it trying to scare you? And, you know, I just I just I just couldn't. Well, it's certainly not trying Makes to scare you early on. It's it's building up the mystery and telling the story of the girl's disappearance and how they're going to come back. I don't think you're expecting scares at that Well, uh, but I expected a lot more because, you know, the film is set in Haiti, you know, so... Well, it starts in Haiti, then st- set in the States. Sorry, you're right. Yeah. It starts in Haiti. So you expect all of the voodoo stuff mm. to have much more of an integrated role than it does. I mean, obviously, it comes in at the end. I kind of felt the Haiti stuff was just cheap. I mean, actually, when we talked about the first Exorcist film, we had a long discussion about the ethics in it, Mm. about the ethics of the way Linda Blair was treated as a child Mm. actress. It's very very well known. Um, And here, I kind of... I I started to think some of the same things about about the girls. But I also felt right at the start with Haiti, it, it felt rather exploitative, the use of the earthquake to set up the film's kind of opening drama and tragedy and so on. Well, and I think it's badly set up and it's a bit of a cheat, in fact. Yeah. You know, because kind of, and spoilers ahead, right? Yeah. But, you know, throughout most of the film, you think that, uh, so the, the father is given a choice. He can only save either his wife or his child. His unborn daughter. Yeah. And then there's a cut and there's a girl who's a teenager, right? And and the film plays peekaboo with you, so you you don't know what you're going to see. And at the beginning, it could be a, a, an adult woman, right? But no, it ends up being the girl, right? So you know, and I think that's a big cheat when you when you get the revelation at the end. Uh, and throughout most of the film, I was saying, I was you know, I was thinking like this doesn't make sense, right? Because why isn't it made more of like? You know, uh, like this, yeah, this choice. Um, you know, thinking, you know, that he's chosen the, like the child, really, and that only really comes up at the end. I thought it was very poor storytelling throughout. It was like poor storytelling, very unimaginative, and also um, the acting was very uneven. Like there, you know, there are some people uh, like Odom who I liked, uh, and then. You know, I think I thought the neighbor, who was a former nun, she had her moments. I thought she was. She has an interesting look and an interesting voice, but actually, then there were moments that she didn't carry through very well. Um, I recognise her. Um, yes, I recognise her as well. And Dowd. Yeah. So, uh, we've got what hasn't she been in? She's got a full-on Wikipedia. Pe- you know, <laughs> uh, let me see. Um, green card, Lorenzo's oil. That's where her career starts. Um, what might. I don't know that she's been a primary actress in anything, but she's she's. I think she's a very she appears well, in lots of things. She's a very, very familiar well, face. Uh, seen, yeah. yeah, character actor. Anyway, just to carry through with that idea, mm. I thought Ellen Burstyn was actually kind of fine. You know, I like her very much, but I thought her character and so on was really mishandled. 
you know, so uh, you're introduced to her via television set where, you know, she's introduced as like this famous act, uh, um, uh, author. And, you know, what, what, what she should have been introduced to is as a famous actress. I mean, in the original film, she's a star, right? Do you so, remember the other films, though? And was she in those? No, did I don't. Did we see her transformation into an author? I don't know. I don't, I don't know any of that. But basically, kind of, you know, the audience's the 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 filmmakers expect the audience for this film to have seen the original Exorcist, mm-hmm. and in the original Exorcist, she's a famous movie star based on Shirley MacLaine. That's kind of what it's based on, mm-hmm. right? So you expect, I mean, you know, she might be an author now, but it just felt odd anyway. And then there's too much space between when you're introduced to her through the television set, and and then when you're introduced to her character. And I thought that whole entrance, you know, star entrance. And uh, the entrance of the character and the weight that Burson brings was completely mishandled, completely botched. And then when they introduced Linda Blair at the end, I wanted to gag, really, like the sentimentality. Well, you, did gag. you did it in my ear. Oh, sorry. <laughs> 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 the sentimentality of that was just atrocious. Uh, so I thought it was like really crappy filmmaking. And I thought an example of that, and I mean, by in all ways, right? So not just the direction and the cinematography and the design and so on, but just, you know, the storytelling itself. I mean, the role of the priest in this is completely mishandled, right? I mean, there's not even any attempt to create tension. You know, there's so, you know, the, the priest can't go into the exorcism because he's been forbidden to by his diocese, you know, but he's outside praying in the car. You know, a better director would have created some tension around that. Will he go back to the exorcism? Will he not? Why will he? Why won't he? Will he get there on time? Yeah, there's so many things that you could do with that. Nothing. Nada. Rien. <laughs> right, there's a lot to respond to. Um, I will first of all just quickly say I disagree with you in part about the twist um, that the Leslie Odom Jr. character um, actually chose his wife. Mm. instead of his daughter because we are essentially led to believe that he chose his daughter that's why his daughter's dead I didn't think it was playing with us that that daughter might be the mum I thought it was quite clear I was chosen the daughter no no I didn't think that the, the... I thought that's what you were saying well I think in the initial just the initial cut yeah you know, from the 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 death of the mother to the next thing the the way that the daughter is filmed it could be an adult for about a second yeah right, it takes okay. a while to realize that it's a girl fair enough I, I, I didn't I didn't think that I, I um, sorry it's straight away um it's the ultimate twist is um is a, is a kind of twist i've seen before i may even see pretty much that exact thing before and and you know so the idea is that it turns out that he chose his wife but they failed to save the wife and save the daughter instead and the problem with the storytelling i mean i don't, I don't have a problem with that twist i don't think the, the film is unfair to us that it was telling us one thing and revealing another i think it is because i, I don't think, i i think uh you're judging a lot of the actions uh in relation to that choice so I I think the problem with the storytelling, but it would actually take a second viewing to really get a handle on it. And there's no bloody way I'm giving this crap film a second viewing. Yeah. <laughs> um, the trouble with the storytelling uh, around that twist is that it obviously then should recontextualize all the interactions, all the all the behaviour you've seen from the father to the daughter. Um, and I, you know, thinking back on the way that. that the way the two of them were together in the film, I don't see that. Oh, this this daughter is this reminder of his wife that he regrets. No, I, I, don't, I just don't see that like turning back on the rest of the film and recontextualizing it deeply. That's the issue I have. It's the storytelling could be stronger. I didn't have a problem with that in terms of it being cheap or a cheat. It's just not very good storytelling. 
Um, the thing about the thinness of the image in The Nun, just quickly, because this occurred to me as well. The first time this thing about the film being too grey occurred to me was when we saw The Last Duel, mm. uh, the Ridley Scott thing. Mm. And I mentioned it in the podcast then, and I didn't really realise what I was seeing at the time. And I think I do now, because I think what happened is that was around the time I got an OLED TV. <laughs> and those show blacks very richly because they just don't put out any light at all where there's mm. black on the screen. So the contrast is really lovely. On a cinema screen, it's just a light bulb shining through mm. film or the digital, you know, the lenses and all that. I don't know exactly how a digital projector mm. does its job. But um, it's just, it's it, there's a light bulb just indiscriminately shining on the screen. And normally you don't notice that when there's contrast and light and dark and things. Mm. But when the whole scene is supposed to be dark, I realised I started to notice that actually the whole thing is kind of lit up. Mm. You know, like there is, even though it's black, it's actually grey. Mm. And that started to distract me. And in a film like The Nun 2 and The Last Jewel, where there is an awful lot of darkness and, and entire shots that are just bathed in darkness, I started to pick up on it. It's quite distracting. I think it might have looked an awful lot better had we seen it in the IMAX, had it been available in the well, IMAX. Well, actually, now that you mention it, you know, because we saw an advertisement for, I forget what the film is, with Jacob Elordi and... Um... Is it? Are you talking about the new Emerald Fennel film? Yeah, yeah. So we saw a trailer for the new Emerald Fennel film, and the contrast between seeing it in an ordinary screen and seeing it in the IMAX. I agree. You know, was just extraordinary. You know, so all the the texture, the density of image, the brightness of the color. You know, so I think I think it's really the projection, probably. Yeah, it's the projection, and and maybe the screen as well has some bearing on it. But there's there's a huge contrast, and as you say, seeing that trailer twice made it so clear mm. what that contrast was. My theory is that the theaters are shortchanging us. So you know, watching a film on a normal screen, you're getting an inferior quality to your television. You know, and it's only when you pay the IMAX or the LIMAX premium. <laughs> but you actually get what you used to get in cinemas before, as a matter of course. And when it comes to Ellen Burstyn in The Exorcist, um, I was uh, talking mostly about what you were talking about, which was that the, the, the character wasn't handled very well. Mm. It's not that I had a problem with her as an actress. I think yes. she was perfectly fine in the film. She's not given an awful lot of great stuff to do, um, but she does what is on the page. Um, the issue that I have, when, the reason that I say that she comes on screen and, and basically the film takes a downturn is because... This film is absolutely obsessed with the original Exorcist, and to the point where the, you know the um, the design of uh, one of the young girls, not the not the main character's daughter, the the secondary family's daughter. Mm. I mean, she couldn't look more like Reagan if they were trying. Like they really seemed like they were yeah. trying, you know. Um, and and the film is is referencing uh, not only through Ellen Burstyn's character's presence, but obviously there, but it is it's referencing elements of um, the original film. My friend David Stewart commented that, you know, this is a film that makes you really appreciate what Linda Blair brought to the original. Yeah. Yeah, because, you, you know, one of the young girls here is made to seem so much like her, yet is so inferior to, the, you know, the range of emotion and performance and th that uh, Linda Blair gives in the original. It makes you really appreciate her performance. Yes. Um, and I felt that... The use of uh, the Ellen Burstyn character, I'm going to keep calling that because I can't remember the character's name. Um, it, it, it actually detracted basically from... The, like it's, it's basically saying, like, we've got Ellen Burstyn in this. We've bring back the character. It's like the thing with Halloween, you know. 
Um, the film was made 40 years ago, but Jamie Lee Curtis is still making them. And now it's like, you know, she's she, she was young and now she's old and there's a whole history that she carries with her. It's like, but it's just kind of, it is cheap to use that. And in the case of Ellen Burstyn in particular, she, I, from what I understand, well, The Exit hasn't been made for a long time. That's I mean, I think it. with Jamie Lee Curtis, it makes sense. She's been you know? she's been consistently doing them for years, and she's been central to all of them, and yeah, and she's used very intelligently. With Ellen Burstyn, I also just thought it was dumb because yeah. you know someone who knows who who has lived through what happens in the original would not do what she did in this film. Yeah, which is you know go to a young girl's room. Yeah, and kind of, yeah. you know, I mean, they would just be a lot more careful and a lot more protective and, you know. And she's supposed to have become someone who is an expert in exorcism through her own research. And that's what this transformation of her uh, from an actress into an author is about, that she's written about this and mm. done all this research. Um, and and that's a reasonable way of bringing her into the film. You know, I've had all this previous experience. Let me bring it to bear on this. I think I've seen things like that before in horror mm. as well. Um but as you say, she's not that bright about it, and she immediately gets her eyes taken out for it, which is pretty unfair and quite. And and then the rest of the film, when you, whenever you do see her, which is not very much, she's cut in every now and again, just like feeling the essence of the exorcism that's happening somewhere else. And and the and the, the very end of the film, um, the very very end of the film is her reuniting with Reagan, who and we have this thing about I don't know where my daughter is, she'd never forgiven me, blah blah blah. But now we're reunited, and it's just for these. 50-year-old fans, or way older even, because the film's 50 years older, um, who, you know, that, that, that doesn't matter to young people, right? But then, because she's not the main character of this film, the very last shot of the film is just a shot of the young girl who's been saved sitting at her classroom desk, which is meaningless, but it's just to say, oh, we can't quite end it on Ellen Burstyn, even though we'd really like to, because she's not technically the main character. I thought it was really dumb, but the main reason that I didn't like her presence was because it distracted from the real story that was being told. What I wanted was a bigger fight or more, um, or just any uh, dramatization of the fight that goes on between the people who realize they need an exorcism and the church denying it. We mm. actually get that basically off screen, more or less. We get a single scene. Um, I wanted to see like the details of it. That's where I thought the, the drama would be. That, might, that would also have made that priest character much more uh, useful I mean, and relevant. I, I, I really, I, just to get back to the storytelling, because that is an example of yeah. just terrible storytelling. And I thought what made it worse is you could imagine the writers in a writer's room saying, oh, wouldn't it be cool to be, do this? And oh, wouldn't it be cool to do that? Or what a fantastic idea is this? And actually kind of, you know, not thinking through what is the story about? What do we want to say? What, you know, what do we want to say about these people and the world they live in and the world we live in? You know, so they have like this stupid Sophie's Choice gimmick about, you know, the parents have to choose who to save. Only one can be saved, Right which I just thought was, like, abysmal. Well, I mean, I also thought it was a, it was a very obvious trick. I mean, the thing is, the devil offers well, you... Well, the trickiness of it was The obvious. devil offers you this choice. What You save one of these girls, whoever chooses gets their girl to live, and then when one of them eventually does choose, that girl is killed and the other is safe, right? I thought that you've got to see through this. Someone in this room... I mean, the parents, I understand, are, like, they're, they, they're stressed out and everything. Someone in that room who knows what they're looking at, the undowed character... Uh, who's like, the, you know, she's the ex-nun and she's the one who's sort of seen this before and it's her chance mm. of a kind of redemption of sorts. Um, 
she's the one who should notice that that you know you never trust the devil sort of thing. Of course. Um, I just thought it was stupid, and it was a real manipulative Sophie's Choice kind of thing that, that was up to nothing. Because obviously, you think, you know, someone's going to make the mistake of choosing, and of course, they're going to choose their daughter, right? <laughs> and of course, it's not going to be the star of the film. So, just absolutely banal, I thought. I also thought, and I couldn't tell actually if this was just stupid or kind of interesting. Um, and the answer will probably be stupid. Um, that the way the exorcism ultimately, the, the exorcism doesn't work. It's not an exorcism, right? One of the girls is saved, but the other dies. And the way that it all plays out is that the devil, if or demon, or whatever the hell, um, offers them this choice, and they go along with it eventually, um, and then it has its consequence. But like what the devil said, even though he lied about which girl would be saved... What the devil said was was true, right? One, know, one will but... be saved, one will live. So actually, it, whereas in in exorcisms, you exorcise the demon, yeah. and I kind of thought it was mildly interesting that this is a bunch of people, also from all different religions, including kind of voodoo, which I think was part of the point of the film. Maybe. Yeah. So we've got like Baptist, Catholic, um, and uh, essentially kind of non denominational, vague Christian refining his faith, which is what Leslie mm-hmm. Odom Jr. I would say is. Um, None of them an expert, um, really, or maybe the, the voodoo lady was. Um, I think there was a voodoo her... lady, and in fact, the priest, when he comes in, though, he's so stupid yes, that yeah. he actually touches the... And he, yeah, so he comes in to save the day and immediately gets dispatched, which I thought was kind of a joke, and I did like it. I did mm. like how silly and stupid quickly he does, you know. But, um, but you've basically got these people who are amateur at this, um, not able to do it. They don't do it. They end up playing well, the devil's game and losing. No, I think they do do it, except so the twist in that, or what you're leaving out, yeah. is the father's thing about the mother's scarf, you know, tying it around his daughter and asking her to resist the devil, yeah, to come out, right? Yeah. So I think that's the difference between the two girls, right? Uh, so... Um, yeah, that's why one struggles, yeah, to to mm. to come out, whereas the other one remains in the darkness, kind of, you know, uh, waiting for the devil to grab her back into hell. <laughs> I also, um, I do think that the film would have been much better had we been given much more of, uh, had the second family, the Baptist family, um, and the and their daughter been given more priority. Essentially we're given we're given more the main two balance, yeah. Yeah, more balance, right? We're given the main two characters, which is Leslie O'Dom and his junior uh, and his junior. Leslie O'Dom Jr. and his daughter. His daughter is played by um Lydia Jewett. Uh, and then we've got these three who make up the other fa- well they've got other kids as well, but we've got the two parents and the daughter of the other family. And because they are secondary from the start, it and we're never given a rich sense of their relationships and who they are then when it comes to the idea of the choice because initially i'm thinking you know they'll both be saved eventually right mm-hmm. and when it becomes clear oh there's this thing about one will and one won't well it's so bloody obvious that one that the one who's not going to live is going to be mm-hmm. secondary character because we're not giving enough on them I, I think we're talking too much about the film i mean it is atrocious so kind of let me give, let me say one more thing um, about the general ex- because this is another way in which the film is heavily basing itself on the original film I think which is that the whole third act of the film is a lengthy 
exorcism sequence. It's not just one scene. It's yeah, they, you go back a little bit, and it re- it made me realize. I'm not sure I realized it really at the time. It made me realize how effective um, that similar lengthy sequence is in the original film because it's not just that single scene in the bedroom it's a long developing relationship with the demon that's inside reagan and they go into a room and they come out and their conversations and they talk to her and we learn about what the demon is or what it wants or how it's testing them and it's it's a very effective lengthy lengthy developing kind of drama whereas here it's just magic spell magic spell more faust more shiting more you know and it's there's I mean, no development in that sense. I think there's no comparison because you know I have to, I have some reservations about Friedkin, but you know, I mean he's a genius of a filmmaker in comparison to you know, this, well, who was the director David Gordon Green or something like that. Mm-hmm. This this person who directed this this um, very inferior film. Well, before we go on to the Nun, would it surprise you to learn that um, the Nun two cost more than this to make? Um, no, uh, though I would be curious to know the difference between the above the line cost and below the line <laughs> cost, right? Because, uh, uh, the nun has more of not quite star casting, but star casting. I mean, yeah, they, mm-hmm. you know, there were people who you've had to pay more because they're back for the sequel and, you know, they were kind of part of the conjuring series, the, the Formiga sisters, you would have had <laughs> to pay them to return to, to this, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so, so the Exorcist believer cost thirty million dollars. This is the Wikipedia. Basic would it budget. surprise you that the Nun Two has made two hundred and fifty million dollars or something like that, whereas the Exorcist has just made like forty something? <laughs> no, no, not at all. I mean, exactly. Yeah. But um, that's why I think it's interesting. Yeah. Just to finish that thought, um, thirty million is what the budget is given as for the Exorcist, and thirty-eight million for the Nun Two. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I think that is kind of interesting when you think about. You were talking about the kind of sparseness of, of of the nun in some respects, um, but it's also period, and it also has, if not quite stars, much bigger names, and it also has a, a preponderance of visual effects and and not just graphics, but they're clearly doing a lot of practical yeah. things. Like, yeah, that costs money. I suppose I'm, I so I take it back in a way because when you think of like Linda Blair and Ellen Burstyn in the other film, I mean, you know, you would have had to pay them as well, you know. Um, so maybe it wasn't um, the above the line cost so much. I don't know. Um, I I thought for me, um, the Exorcist film looked like an episode of a TV show. <laughs> you know, like like an yeah. HBO yeah, yeah. Sh- an HBO show, right? Yeah. So there is obviously care and skill and you know technical know how. I mean, it's very well photographed, I think, The Exorcist. Yeah. Yes, I agree with that. Uh, but uh, to me, uh, uh, The Nun 2 looked like a movie. You know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, let's talk about The Nun 2 a little bit. Um, I I had forgotten... I, I think it's interesting that we, um, we were the only two people in the cinema, and for that reason, we felt free to have a little bit of a chat every now and again, mm. which we wouldn't ordinarily do. Um, and there were points in the first act primarily of The Nun 2 where we were having a little joke about a, a kind of a silliness in the storytelling. Like at one point, there's so basically Tysa Farmiga, uh, her character who was in the first Nun film, fought this demon. This demon has returned and she is sent off 
by the Catholic Church to do something about it again. Uh, it's now she's now having to chase it across Europe. It started in Romania. It's wound up in France. Mm. Uh, and there's a thing about that the Catholic Church asks her, she refuses, and they say, you know, you defeated this once before. The, the church needs another miracle. And I said to you, shouldn't they ask God? And there are one or two things like that where we were joking, but I think it's a mark of the film that when it came to the set pieces, you know, walking into dark rooms, we know mm. that a demon's going to be showing up, mm. the fight starts to happen. We weren't talking through any of that. Those were working. Those were working and they were clever and they were visually stunning, you know, the, the nun becoming like a, a, a mural of a nun, you know, the whole sequence of the magazines. Yeah, mm. it was kind of like visually, I wouldn't say thrilling, but very interesting to see. There were some really good ideas um, and, and I loved, I, yeah, it was it was the nun showing up in the background and the film is not afraid to show you stuff. It's not like all Heidi Heidi, mm. but um, it does have a certain subtlety in that, which I'm, and I'm not sure I've ever seen anything quite like it before where the nun is showing up in the background and when you turn around to look at it, it snaps and it turns out that you were just looking at um, you know, some dirt on the wall that's nun-shaped, mm. something like that. And obviously you weren't just looking at that, like the nun was actually there and the film is full of all that presence. But um, I, I thought, well, that's really clever, that stuff. I One really of the things it. that I was wrong about, but, you know, I thought how interesting, because I, I initially thought that, you know, when the, when the nun-demon... Uh, takes on physical form, yes. Mm. I thought it was the Romanian guy, yeah, that was in, in the nun outfit. Uh -huh. So I thought, oh, how interesting, like drug, drag or, you know, <laughs> transgender people are being demonized and so on. And of course, it turns out that that is played by an actual kind of, you know, uh, uh, that's not by a man or a trans person, it's by a woman. <laughs> uh, so um, I thought... You know, the film would have been kind of, uh, uh, well, maybe because it did look kind of very masculine. That nun, the nun, um, yeah, yeah, maybe so. I, I, I think there might be. I, I think I would say there's an element of androgyny to the nun. Yes, um, and the way so the idea that the that the Maurice character, who's not Romanian, I should say, I think he's, the idea is that he's French or Belgian. He, we just met him in Romania, and he's now back in France. I think. I think he's done for his actor and his name, Maurice. Well, he's he's a Belgian actor mm. who makes his career in France. But you know, my understanding of the story is he's that he's meant, he's meant to be Romanian because that whole thing originates in Romania, and then he's been traveling from place to place. I wonder whether trail I, of bodies. I wonder whether I remember the first film having dialogue that explained a Frenchman's presence in Romania. I think there might have been. There, there might um, be. Anyway, um, um, it's not that which important. Which again, kind of, you know, because I'm, you know, I was trying to think, oh, how interesting, right? You know, so the film has this other thesis of like, you know, Romanians migrating across the world, <laughs> leaving detritus behind them. And it was like this anti-Romanian feeling. Though, of course, you know, if he's not Romanian, then there goes that thesis <laughs> yeah. as well, right? But the, which then begs you the question, what is the film fucking about, right? Like, kind of, <laughs> you know, because the thing about horror, I find it so interesting because horror articulates social fears, right? That That is what scares you, right? So, you know, it is, I think, always a commentary on the culture. But I was trying to figure out, you know, what is this film telling us? Because, you know, we, 
we don't live in a sec we live in a secular culture. You don't have that kind of Catholicism. So how is it trying to scare you by you know other worlds coming in? I mean, I I don't understand what the, you know. It's so it's interesting um, that the nun is completely the film is is completely buying into the reality of all of this right yes. there's like the supernatural exists it is all catholic yes the catholic god is your god and so on and these words have power and these artifacts have power there's a whole thing in this about um about finding this particular artifact and this is what the nun is after mm. and if they can use it then they can defeat her which and and the film reminds you in dialogue and then ultimately in action uh, of the same thing happening in the first one with Jesus's blood, mm. and I said to you guys, "Always fucking Jesus's blood, isn't it?" <laughs> and here it was um, Jesus's blood and Saint Lucy's eyes That's right. that were plucked out, which is also interesting because Ellen Burstyn's eyes mm. coincidence. Mm -hmm. um, whereas in The Exorcist, um, there's a huge amount of scepticism coming yeah. particularly from Leslie Odom Jr.'s character, and you know it's one of these films where you have to be convinced of the reality. I think I said this when we were talking about hereditary there's that whole segment in hereditary where the main character it's when she does that seance i think like she has to be convinced that this is real you know these characters start off in essentially an atheist world where we don't believe any of this and they have to be and to be fair this also goes back to the exorcist you know mm. first exorcist film had i don't believe any of this i've got to be yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I've got to go through the scientific experiments, all these invasive procedures, to eventually realise that there's nothing medically wrong. This is demon, and demons okay. are real. Um, so it's kind of interesting that that you know the nun is just getting, it's ignoring all of that. It's saying we, and I think the period setting helps. Mm. Period setting, uh, European setting. We're in a convent already. Everyone already believes in all of this. Mm. Um, so that kind of. That, that that sets it that sets up the world and what we're supposed to be buying straight away. Although again, I thought it was kind of interesting, although it's not played on that much. That the um, secondary character, the secondary nun who goes on the uh, journey with Tysa Farmiga, she doesn't believe. She doesn't believe. Well, she's she's struggling to believe. She's finding it hard to believe. Mm. But I think the film suggests that it's going to be playing up the idea that she has to find her faith to defeat it. Um, and doesn't quite sell it. Yeah, um, it doesn't quite sell any of it. And I was trying to think the whole thing about the Saint Lucy, that uh, so basically she was somebody who um, was burned alive by pagans, but actually she could she didn't burn, so they uh, took her eyes out. Um, and those are this relic. Yeah, and those are this relic, and then there's you know a thing. A kind of a matriarchal thing about how the relationship between the nun and her mother gives her strength and saves her and then they make her realize that she's a descendant of Saint Lucy mm. yeah um and you think okay like but what's all this about what is the film telling us through all of this that kind of our ancestors uh punishments or sacrifice will save us or that there's some kind of some inherited you know, some some darkness or trauma that's inherited through generation. What is the film trying to say through this, right? And I just kind of think nothing. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also because because that character, the Tysa Farmiga character, 
um, becomes will grow up to become the Vera Farmiga character because mm. they're sisters. But Vera Farmiga is twenty years older, so um, she plays her in the eighties as opposed to the fifties version. Um, and they're part of this this eight film universe. Mm. May I, and I've seen hardly any of the others. Yes, maybe maybe the... that teaches you something about that character and explains things. So maybe there's a whole universe thing that I'm not getting because I don't know the universe yes. that that is playing into. Um, but on its own, in this film, it's not doing a huge amount. It it has that it it basically has the element of revelation that this is why this character is particularly important and and has some relationship with the nun. But that's not doing an awful lot. For no, me. it's not. I mean, you know, I thought it was very entertaining. It was a very entertaining film. Uh, you know, because it looked interesting. Um, it was imaginative, you know, it had kind of, like we mentioned the, the um, you know, the nun becoming a mural, the stained glass window offering clues, mm. the scene with the magazines forming the image of the nun, you know, the content itself becoming like a site of both terror and salvation, you know, and offering like the ruins of, you know, a haunted murder and, you know, it had the thing with the cockroaches, which was like, you know, I oh yeah, you really responded to that. Yeah, like, ugh. yeah. You know, so so boarding kind of, school, I should say, boarding school, not convent. Boarding schools where the where the all the action resides in France, but it's a form of convent. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I thought all of that was like kind of, you know, ent- entertaining, much better certainly than The Exorcist, but I think ultimately kind of. I couldn't think of of where like neither of them were really scary. No. And you know, you do think like a a better, you know, more serious and more fun attempts at these films would find kind of something about the world we live in, you know, that is that it scares us and tap into it kind of, you know, allegorically or something, right? Like uh that that to me is kind of you know what horror the horror genre does so well and so vividly and so powerfully and i just found it completely lacking in both of these films actually yeah well what are these films telling stories about the exorcist is talking about parents and children and their relationships and what they mean to each other and the film starts off with the much more real than demons terror of losing your children like where are that well it starts off immediately with the choice between the wife and the daughter but then the whole opening act is um, these girls are missing, mm. and and the the fear of what could happen to them and where they are and so on, um, and then ultimately it, it it ends up playing on something has happened to my daughter, can I save her? And a certain degree of competition between the families who are trying to save their daughters. I thought the Exorcist also, alongside that, had the thing about a very religious Baptist family who believes. Yes, the uh, skeptic, yeah, who doesn't. And then also, I what I thought was a really kind of cheap dressing of, you know, the Haitian voodoo culture in, and relating that to this African-American family. Mm. And yeah. also, on top of that, you've also got the Andown character, who's Catholic. Yes. Wannabe, wannabe, former wannabe nun and um, a Pentecostal preacher who's involved. So there is 
there is a, a rainbow coalition of varieties of Christian. And it doesn't do very much with that either. No, uh, but it does kind of speak, because that's the other thing, I was, I was really expecting something very deeply Catholic, you know, something that took that Catholicism seriously, which is not saying that I understand very well, but I recognise it. Um, and and the, the um, insistence on uh, damage to flesh and body parts, I thought came across as quite Catholic. You know, the fingernails, the blood, scratches on the skin. There's something like that physical persecution is something maybe unfairly, I don't know, I associate with being something that Catholics do that other religions or other well, other varieties of Christianity don't concentrate on. So the heavily. Protestants also had, you know, those things about the mortification of the flesh. Yeah. <laughs> no, fair enough. Um, um, so, and it certainly did more of that than, than the nun did. The nun wasn't doing any of that, really. Mm. Um, I mean, even the stuff with the eyes gouging out was not gory. You didn't see it. You didn't concentrate on physical no. uh, damage sort of thing. Um, and the exercise actually made me think of like funny Christian, the word Christian wasn't used all that much, at least in America, before Jimmy Carter in the nineteen seventies and eighties. To my understanding, because like I mean, if you think about um, uh, JFK, for instance, he was a Catholic, yes. and there was a whole thing about if we have a Catholic president, is he going to be taking orders from the Pope? Mm. You know, like you were Catholic or you were Baptist or you were this, that, and the other. There were lots of mm. you weren't all united. You kind of became united when. Um, abortion became uh, a big thing with Roe v. Wade, and when Jimmy Carter uh, was, uh, he declared himself born again Christian. Right. So basically, what that meant was that declaring yourself born again Christian lent legitimacy to the term. He wasn't calling himself born again Baptist or whatever denomination he was Christian generally. And the thing about Roe v. Wade was he was an enemy, a political enemy that all Christians could unite to fight, right? Mm. So that's kind of when it comes into play. And I thought it was interesting that whether whether meaningfully or not, whether intentionally or not, um, something similar was being played in this film where it, it maybe it's a very specific Catholic demon or maybe it's something else. I didn't get a good read on what the demon was. Um, but as I said, a rainbow coalition of different varieties of of Christian and 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 beliefs, or even lack thereof, come together to fight it. Well, yes, but where does that leave the voodoo thing? Because you know the voodoo thing isn't Christian, is it? Well, so I I did look at the Wikipedia page, and I think according to the Wikipedia page, assuming it's accurate, um, the specific word for what that character is, or the the the, the faith or kind of set of beliefs that she's representing, is hoodoo which has Christian elements and it oh, combines right, okay. lots of things. So I think that does fit into to a, so to a, a vague degree of African beliefs and Christian. Ones. That's what it like seems to Cuba. be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but, uh, perhaps, but as, as you might be able to tell, I'm even less well versed in that than I am in Catholicism. Yeah, you know? I'm sure you're better versed than the filmmakers were because it's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I've I've done a thorough skimming of the Wikipedia page. If that helps, uh, uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe they didn't. Um, um, but I think what I liked about the nun was really the ambiance, like the beginning with the altar boy and the priest and the priest going up in flames on the ceiling. It just looked smashing. Yeah. And it mm -hmm. kind of, you know, and it moved well and it set like this eerie tone and, yeah. you know, kind of all, all the stuff which I found really missing in, this, in The Exorcist. I wondered in the nun whether um, a slightly less enthusiastic use of visual effects um 
might have benefited it. Um, it, it it's, it's double-edged, right? I'm not sure I, I agree with what I'm thinking here, but essentially the film has is very capable of subtlety. And then it will, at a moment's notice, enthusiastically disregard that subtlety and like set someone on fire and have the you know the nun fly at the screen, mm. jump at you. Like it will, it will set up things subtly and then explode into action. Yeah. Um, and I wondered whether it does that so enthusiastically that uh, m- maybe it's just not even really thinking of itself as a horror film in that sense. Is it supposed to scare you or just like overwhelm you? You know, maybe that's the intention. I don't know, but I thought that the the nun had all kinds of a, of cinematic attractions, right? You know, that were, and also I suppose, kind of a reconceptualization that was interesting because the nun feels like a very matriarchal film. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's about women. It's about relationships between women. Women are at the fore. You know, um, yeah, including like the saint. Is yeah, saint mm. is it Lucy? I believe Lucy. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was interesting on its own. Yeah. The kind of women have the power, you know, and kind of women are the terror as well as the power. I thought that was kind of very interesting. I also thought it was interesting that in a way the object of desire, which is also the demon, you know, is the man. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I did find that both visually interesting. I thought I thought all of the actors in uh, Nun 2 um, were, were attractive. Like, I, I mean, some of them, I didn't understand what they were doing there, right? So, you know, the school teacher who's the mom of the child and who clearly has a kind of a burgeoning relationship with Maurice, the, uh, um, you know, I just thought there wasn't enough there. But, mm. you know, but they were all kind of... Uh, very appealing kind of actors. Uh, And I thought the women were especially fascinating because they were both really appealing and also not traditionally beautiful. When you say the women, do you mean the two nuns in particular who... I mean the two nuns and the school teacher. Okay, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, kind of, because all three of them have unconventional looks, yeah? Mm. So, um, but they're very, very appealing on on screen, I think. Yeah. and then, of course, the man has very traditional looks. Yeah, mm. uh, you know, he's tall, blonde, very well built, and kind of, you know, uh, the women clearly fancy him or have something for him. Almost all of them. Yeah, uh, I, I liked his presence in the film as as this one man amongst a sea of women, yes. and, and where he's working, particularly um, uh, young girls at this boarding school, um, and then he's got this pre existing relationship with the um, the Tysfamaga character. Um, because it, it, it is partly his height that does it. He the, and there's a kind of there's a fatherly um, role to him, in a sense, mm. and, and he plays it. You know, he he disciplines some of the kids, or not quite disciplines, because he's only like a handyman, so he doesn't have the right to do that. But um, you know, he tells them off when they're bullying the one girl, and then mm. he's a kind of father figure to her. And they're obviously building a kind of family unit mm. with because because she, her mother is her teacher, mm. and they are. You know, um, tentatively building a family unit, or the girl certainly sees a, a, a you know mm. budding relationship between the two of them potentially. Yes, uh, but also what I thought was interesting is that this fatherly, nice, handsome man also has a demon inside. He's him the vector yeah, for the evil that makes him do evil things that he has no control over. Now, 
you could take that as a kind of, I don't know, and a patriarchal excuse for all kinds of abuse. Right? The devil yeah. made me do it. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a very, so there's a very interesting idea inherent in that, which is not fully developed in the film, but which I found interesting. Yes, and the, as the, the one man amongst all mm. these women, um, as nice as he is, and as fatherly and responsible and all the rest of it, and charming, He's, um, he's also <laughs> could he can turn immediately. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, that's, that's uh, interesting. Um, but that also that's what I was going to say way back when about the thing about the nun's androgyny is um, her smile. He also performs, and mm. you see that, and it's a mad smile, you know, and you see it connecting with her. Mm. Um, obviously, I also thought. Did. I mean, just to take the thought a bit further. It's interesting that you know, this demon is shared, yeah, between kind of the only man in the film, yeah, and the nun, right? So kind of, you know, and so if we take the man as, you know, someone who has a demon inside him, and also as a kind of a symbol of, you know, the, the oppressions of patriarchy, yeah, the kind of these women have to manage and control and defeat. Yeah, then actually it's interesting that it's also that that is shared with a nun. Yeah, the, <laughs> the nun, you know, which is like you know historically something that is almost like uh, absolutely associated with femininity. Yeah, for obvious reasons, also then becomes like shares this kind of patriarchal thing with of the demon. Yeah, she is the demon. Mm. Yeah, that takes on. Sometimes the figure of the nun, and sometimes is inside this man. Yeah, See, the that's more, much more interesting than, than when I was watching the film. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's absolutely true because because um, I think all the all the the positive vibes that we feel towards the nun um, are real, but they're also in reflection of having just seen The Exorcist Believer second. And being very, very unimpressed with that. Mm. Um, so I think like we might have been a little less positive about the nun two had we just come back and done that. Maybe, away. but I, I but, mean, I, I don't think so because I told you when you know when when we finished seeing it, you know that I thought it's not really you know it's not really good, but I had a really good time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the time whizzed by, yeah, which you know mm. was for me not the case with the other film, and it wasn't just because. You know, we were seeing another film. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was a problem with the film itself, not with my attempt at watching two films in a day. But you've seen two horror films in a day. I know. And survived. <laughs> and you're not a huge fan of horror. Um, but maybe the fact that these weren't all that scary, because um, you don't like being scared. I don't like being scared. Uh, um, yeah. It's, it's, it's a genre that I kind of force myself to see because... Actually, certainly in the last decade or so, it's been the most interesting genre in terms of, you know, kind of giving you ideas of the world we live in and what it's like and what our fears are and, you know, kind of... Um, I, I, what was that Ethan Hawke film about? So one day you can kill anybody you want. <laughs> the Purge. The Purge. I thought yeah. that was fascinating. Well, we've right? seen a bunch of those. We've, we've seen a bunch of those. We saw one on the podcast. Yeah. So, you know, so, so I kind of... I'm interested in the genre, but I don't like the experience of watching the films, you know, mm. if that makes any sense. 
So um, today, I just thought, well, it would be an interesting way to kind of get them out of the way. My theory about suffering is, you know, kind of get it out of the way as quickly as possible. Like, <laughs> so, so, uh, but um, I think, I think there are images from this, the nun film that will remain with me. Mm -hmm. And I think I'll forget all about this exorcist, like, by tomorrow, really. Yeah, and one thing that um, your friend Dave said in that Facebook post, which I liked, was, um, I said, well, I'm paraphrasing, essentially, it doesn't matter if all the other exorcist films are rubbish. The first one's still there, and that's the one I really care about. Yeah. And I like that attitude, right, of, like, you know, it might be rubbish, but it hasn't ruined the thing I like. Yeah. You know, you do get... That you get that attitude sometimes. And and I think it's important also because, you know, we did a whole series of podcasts on Friedkin. Yeah. Mm. And I think he's a fascinating director. And there are things that I love in almost all of his films. And yet, I'm never quite convinced that he's a great filmmaker. Yeah. Kind of, there's, there's always kind of something off or ill considered or, you know, kind of, he doesn't, to me, rank as one of the very great directors. But, you know, watching these two films, it makes you realize that, you know, you might critique Friedkin or you might remain unconvinced about it, but he's working in a completely different league to these people, right? Yeah, like, yeah. you know, kind of, you know, you see a camera move in, in a Friedkin film, you know, and you know it's going places, right? Whereas here, you think they haven't even considered what the camera move can do, much less achieve something complex with it. Yeah, yeah. and I would say that's true of The Nun as well as... Um... Yeah, of course. The Exorcist, like it's, it's. We liked it a lot more, but it's still it's not, not a bit great. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, all right. Well, thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter at Eavesdrop Movies and Blue Sky Eavesdropping dot uh, and the website with all four hundred of our podcasts is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Bye. Bye-bye. Happy 400th anniversary, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> yes, here's to 400 more. <laughs> <laughs>